This is Game Theory, a podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making, hosted by me, Nick Andrews, and my brother, Chris. In this episode, we're torturing the numbers. A number of weeks ago, a scandal involving a Harvard professor broke that had the internet laughing at the academic elite. It turns out that a renowned academic who'd risen to prominence by researching dishonesty had been completely dishonest about her own study. In a blog post, a group of academics reported that the professor had manipulated the numbers. They could tell because she published the original Excel spreadsheet online and forgot to cover her tracks. That's right. Excel saved the day by having different fonts and tracking the history of cell formulas. Now, amid the humor and outrage of the scandal, internet gumshoes are working their way through her entire catalog of work, and we are taking a look at how prevalent and terrifying data manipulation and academic dishonesty really are. For example, why do men's reported heights spike at six feet? While that one could be obvious, it may not be so obvious why a logarithmic chart is so problematic in medicine and what we're going to do if things get worse, and who can really tell if the experts are wrong? And welcome to episode 82 of Game Theory Podcast about competition strategy and decision making hosted by us. Uh, You can't watch this episode on YouTube because, Chris, about 20 to 30 minutes prior to recording, we found out that Zoom, the client that we had used, which I had liked quite a bit um, more than other clients, slipped into their terms and conditions that they could just repurpose content that was recorded on Zoom at any time for any reason, and they could also store it and analyze it, and as a company that is run in the People's Republic of China, um, no. So we had to pivot a little bit, and we don't have a video client right now, and we had to record at this moment in time, so it is what it is at this point in time. Um, I don't feel uh, sad about ditching Zoom. We will find a way to get back on video, but we're not going to give them our intellectual property for all of time. Yeah, intellectual property feels like a very strong word for what we're putting out <laughs> here. But let me let me just let me just read this. This is exactly what it reads from the Zoom updated terms and conditions. They're version ten point four, or or rather, uh, we're looking at section ten point four. So Zoom has secured a quote perpetual worldwide non exclusive royalty free sub licensable and transferable license to redistribute, publish, access, use, store, transmit, review, disclose, preserve, extract, modify, reproduce, share, use, display, copy, distribute, translate, transcribe, create derivative works, and process customer content. In other words, China is taking all this stuff from Zoom so that they can train AIs. Yes. So it's not a good look for really anybody, but for whatever reason, China thinks that they're going to benefit from Zoom taking their customer stuff. So we're not going to, we're not going to enable that. We're not going to play around with that. And we don't, frankly, we don't care what the name of the company is. Yeah. The and software that we're using, we just no. care that we have control, creative control over our own crummy little podcast so that we can continue. <laughs> it's not crummy. To do the work for you. Player yes, three, player three. We do um, this for you. Zoom is an interesting case study of a company that has really kind of screwed the pooch because I, I knew about zoom 
early 2018 because I worked in uh, like for a hospital and it was a much better messaging client and a much better video meeting client. It was awesome. I wrote the the documentation. I uploaded it to like 30,000 users and then the pandemic hit and it became like a verb. Everybody liked it. It was so much easier and they have really fallen flat on their face since then. Microsoft Teams podcasts are now recorded with other clients, no ad, no free ads. So if there are clients out there that want their names dropped, then uh, let's have a conversation about um, what maybe I don't want to pay for your premium stuff, but I will tell everyone who you are and we can just have a big open contest. So we also wanted to introduce a new segment, Chris, called In the Wild. Every time we do a game theory episode and we see an example of that thing happening, I want to bring it back up on the show, and sometimes we forget, so I want to do In the Wild. I have an In the Wild for you this week. And, of course, we are talking about scandals and some the game theory of publishing. We're going to use an actual game theory academic journal publication from an, a journal that is just game theory stuff. So that's cool. Which is which is really great. I, yeah. If you want quality game theory analysis, I highly recommend yep. checking it out. Not here for sure. This is a this is introductory stuff. This is like <laughs> yeah. we're we're like the gateway to what you actually want to learn about. Mm. And we the, the cool thing about that is that you can get into the actual like nitty gritty of people who have like big brains and do work to get to their conclusions yes. instead of just kind of parroting them like we do. Yeah, and then we want to give the authors credit, um, not because they can't do a podcast on their own, but because we want them to feel uh, like it's cool to have another podcast talk about you, even though that is not this podcast. We're, I don't know if no, that, we're validating. No, there are other Game Theory podcasts <laughs> out there, I think also with the same name. Yeah, probably. So make guess. sure you stay brand loyal to this one. Yes, Player no three. question. Okay, so I have it in the wild for you. Do you remember... When we did our proximity paradox thing about ice cream on the beach and why there are gas stations and there are two gas stations in the middle of nowhere and they're right across the street from each other, like, that seems counterintuitive. Yeah, so, it's, it's like every every stop at every every exit you take on the interstate, no matter where you're at, every town looks exactly the same. They have like a McDonald's, a Sunoco, mm-hmm. a Mini Mart, Kentucky and a Taco Hut, John's, a Kentucky right Hut. The corner. Kentucky Hut. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And right. it's like and like every place has their own like regional thing. They're like oh. Royal Farms is the best. You ever heard of Royal Farms? Yeah, of course. It, it's a jacked up Maryland centric New Jersey. I guess I don't know. It's a weird gas station. Yeah, that I people agree. just go ape shit over. Have you heard it's about like Bucky's? that? Was like Sheets and Wawa, Bucky's. People yeah, love Bucky's. They love it. But all the towns look the same because the stops that you get off the interstate from, yep. they have this kind of like locus of travel areas. And so it's like, well, you know, does it make sense for these businesses all to be right next to each other? And on the episode, we discussed that exact phenomenon. Yes. Why do all these businesses cluster together? So what, what's your, what's your, so framing? I was thinking about, I have uh, purchased an electric vehicle, like a real electric vehicle, fully electric. It needs to be charged. I took it on its first big boy road trip, um, which was required. It added about an hour and a half to the trip to charge it and that's fine and you can debate the the pros and cons of that or whatever but as i was as i was doing it i thought it's a fun game to play in your head like where would you put chargers walmart super centers and sam's clubs have often have chargers in the parking lot like the good ones not the simple little complimentary ones but the ones that you would use on a road trip and you think well that's great you just walk right into walmart and i have spent more money at walmart since owning an electric vehicle than uh in decades plural yes brilliant so then i was like so then my brain's going well like where am i going to place them and then i thought to myself well as I've had to charge, and there's like a a, sec, a section of like six or seven of them, like if there were ones across the street, maybe they would pull even more people from the interstate because all of these cars have maps Probably of where would. they are. And I was thinking, where I want to put one. There's one spot outside of Knoxville. I'm not going to tell you people so you don't take my idea. That I want to put electric chargers. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm sure nobody I'm has ever thought. No real estate down. developer. Yep, has totally. About this. Um, and then I thought to myself, why? 
if I'm going to go into business and take on a loan or whatever, why not just put two in proximity paradox myself? Like, that's a way to do it. It's yeah. kind of like what those what are those sandwich shops in Philadelphia that sell the steaks? Yeah, Pats and Geno's. Pats and Geno's? Yeah. Yeah, literally. Yeah, there's no there's no rivalry there. That's no. a, that's an artificially created rivalry that's like spun up the story. Like, no, don't go don't go to this sandwich shop. You got to go to the better one. You got to go to Geno's. Don't go to Pat's. Right. That's exactly right. And they're like they're like the same product. It's just kind of like a made up story. It's myth. But by, but I don't think you could arouse the same level of no. passion. No, maybe for not. electric vehicle chargers. Definitely not. Mistakes. I don't think that people are going to care nearly as much. I will say emphatically that the this is my hint hint the parking lot the store that has the parking lot where I, where I want to put it, it does have that level of mythology around it, and it is um, oh, no. Walmart Don't say it's Oh, it's not Wawa. Wawa already is on that. They're, they have electric chargers. They're really good at it. Yeah, this store is, is very Wawa similar. Have, guys, Wawa's overrated. You heard it here. Wawa's, Wawa's not that good. Don't tell uh, your wife I said that, but it's just not that good. Yeah, I wouldn't tell her that to her face. That is for show. You best of luck with that. Um, no, it's got, a, it's got a similar um, vibe and kind of diversity of product as Walmart, but people uh, think it's better and they like it a lot Kmart? more to the point that they mispronounce the name to make it sound French. That's your clue. That narrows it down <laughs> to one. <laughs> yeah, that's where you go to, go to avoid... Mm-hmm. Walmart crowds at the price of yeah. just a little premium, a little bit, a little bit more. So that's I was thinking about that. Like that, that seems to be the good idea. Like it's not competitive to put them next to each other. It's literally a good idea. So then, why wouldn't why if I do one, por qué no los dos? They should put the chargers inside those big like concrete spheres that they have outside the store. Yeah, that's a good call. That is, I mean, that, that would like, that would be really on theme. I think. The best part about having an electric vehicle is not having to charge it. It's when you get to a place where they're in the parking lot, having to look for them in the parking lot. They're never in the same place. It's always the most fun thing ever. Okay. It's really embarrassing for you. Speaking of really embarrassing, let's talk about how a guy who wrote a book on academic honesty um, and dishonesty just lied about the data and also how data manipulation is super possible and it's a huge problem and it creates a publishing loophole. It's like a prisoner's dilemma shit show. And um, so I, I, I want to quote... One of my good friends and former colleague, Dr. David Henry, perhaps the best clinical oncologist that I've ever met, maybe in the world, he's the best. I love him. He's, a, he's, he's the man. He said, data are, the, it's the same thing as a hostage, where if you torture it long enough, it will tell you whatever you want it to tell you. That is pretty good. Yeah. That, that's a good, that's a more, I guess, a darker way of saying, our dad used to say this thing, and I'm sure he did, I'm sure it was like one of these like Wayne Dyer, who moved my cheese type of books. Yeah. Remember what he used to say about statistics? Oh, I do. Yep. And I'm trying to find yeah, a, a woke, a like, gender inclusive way to say this. Um, no, we're going to, we're going to stick with the original the because original. Okay, sure. that's, yeah, I, statistics are like bikinis. What they reveal is very interesting. What they conceal is vital. Vital is a great way to put it. And that's true. So this uh, story, the Harvard guy, is going to springboard us into a larger conversation about how data is manipulated. And we're going to get into how um, men's height is kind of pointing out. It's a great way to illustrate how distribution of of data can can kind of skew what we're looking at. So let's start with the scandal. This guy goes to insurance, car insurers, and he all he wants to understand is, are people going to be more honest if they put the honesty box on the top of the form or on the bottom of the form, right? So that's the beginning. Where is the box located? So then he, they collect the data, they analyze the data, they publish the data, they write a book. Then he publishes the data in the original spreadsheet. He just publishes the spreadsheet, like probably a copy of the spreadsheet on the internet and this blog, this group of researchers who are doing the Lord's work and are named it a great they, blog. They are. 
They're so cool. They call it I, data colada, which is awesome. Like pina colada? Correct. <laughs> like oh, my pina. God. So data colada looked at the spreadsheet, and they went deep into the spreadsheet, and they realized that customer numbers weren't lining up in chronological order. It's like, well, why are they off? So then they looked at um, mileage estimations, and they realized that a lot of people that drove more than 10,000 miles were not rounding, which is not human behavior. So then they looked at the distribution of how many miles people were charging or charging were driving. <laughs> <laughs> See where my head's at. I'm a yeah, how many, how many miles Tesla's did Biden charge his F-150 before That's he right. took it on that test drive? The distribution of how many miles driven by the people in the study did not make a nice pyramid like it should, right? Most people drive somewhere in the middle, say 10,000 a year. The outliers would be 500 a year, 50,000 a year. In this study, it was even Steven. So then the data, a lot of people were like, I wonder if this guy used a random number generator in Excel, which is something Excel can do, which is crazy. However, Excel, you can move cells around. You can't, I think you can, but if you forget, you can... It tracks the activity and formulas in every cell. So then they went into the live document, and they're like, did this guy? Yup, totally did. And then they looked at the fonts of people. Like, oh, well, there was a different font setting on whatever computer changed it, so the fonts are different. And they're like, these things all look fishy, and it turns out they were. So let's – let's. there's so much there to discuss. There's a lot going and on. The, the, the TikToks that we have linked in the... I, I, I hate that we're linking TikToks. That was not my decision. Yeah. Speaking of Chinese companies that misbehave yeah, and I know. abuse but, your data. But, but regardless, there's a lot to unpack here. I want to start at the very top. So you talked about the distribution of the number of miles that people yes. self allegedly self-reported allegedly. that they had driven. Right. The average person is, first of all, going to round to some numbers. So like right now I have like, I don't know, 189,000 miles on my truck, depending on who's asking. Right. I'm I'm not going to say well you know I need to I need to check the odometer before I can get back right to and you. So the, let me go off my garage and you think you're doing this company a solid you're like I'm not going to do homework homework I'll fill it out but I'm not right. going to like go look at it right what is the minimally acceptable level of effort that I can apply <laughs> to this project and yes. still get a passing grade oh, like in college so, so that's the first that's the first red flag yes that's a bad <laughs> yeah, one like in college well yeah well yeah, that was that was true for one of us. Multiple times. Yes, for sure. And I think I went to, how do I say this? At Notre Dame, they allow you to have, go through fake graduation. And so I went to your fake one, and I was too hungover <laughs> for your real one the next year. They falsify the graduation. Yes, I went I left. I went to the, the party on your real graduation, but I drove home. I was like, Good. I'm too hungover to sit in the stadium. I'm not going. That's honestly fair. Yeah, for sure. But, that was, but the first red flag with this data was that none of the numbers were round numbers that were easily yep. binnable. The second deals with the shape of the distribution that you would you would get this in. So we're going to go back to math class. I, I assume that there's a good chunk of, of player three out there that's probably pretty familiar with this stuff, and they're kind of like insulted that we're breaking it down. Yeah. But there's a big chunk that, that is not. So yeah. if you're not the type of person who's dug into a bunch of Microsoft Excel and made graphs and charts and spreadsheets and don't care about distributions and all that stuff, this is the interesting part. Because the shape of the data, the graph that you get from plotting the data, is a huge indicator of whether that data are whether that data set is authentic and it's filled with like real answers or whether it might have potentially been falsified. So you said that the data as they appeared in the study that yeah. the data collada group dug into, it was nice one nice flat even distribution of numbers. Yes. The way that those distributions work is that there's a range for each kind of set of data and they call Data scientists refer to those as like bins. So you can bin the data. So every number that exists between one bound and a different bound, that go, all goes into the same bin. 
Just as long as it's with as long as it's within that. So yeah. So let's give an example. Range there. Let's say that like you were breaking down how many miles you drove in a year. They would say, okay, forty-five people said that they drove seven thousand to ten thousand miles. So seventy-five hundred and ninety-nine hundred are, for the purposes of this, the same. And this yep. dis- this distribution meant that each bin had like every section of miles, so between 7,500 and 1,000, from 1,000 to 1,500 or whatever, right? Every single bin had the same amount of people, which is not correct. Yeah, that, that's, that kind of thing not, That's not how those data normally look. No, the, the real shape of it, you, you described it as a pyramid. That's not quite true. That shape has a specific name. It's called the Gaussian, wow. or the normal, normal distribution. Yeah, it's named after a guy named Gauss. And it looks kind of like, uh, it looks like an inverted bell. So like the top of it is kind of round and it comes to a peak right in, in the in the center. And then it gradually slopes off and it makes this kind of like mirrored S shape so that there's a peak in the middle and then it goes off to like tapered ends. And that shape indicates, the, the theoretically perfect shape for that indicates that it is a 100% normal distribution. Yep. And what that tells you is that the numbers of bins in a sample that you get that are on the very, very extreme end. So the people that are like driving a ton of miles, like driving like 500,000 miles or whatever. And the number of people that are not driving at all, they're driving like less than a hundred miles. There are very, very few people in those groups. And as you get toward the center of this distribution, there are more and more people who fit into that category. Right. So I, I don't know what the, I don't know what the data set was here that we're looking at. So I I won't say the exact numbers to try to throw it off. But the point is that that characteristic bell curve, that Gaussian shape, didn't appear in the data set that that came out of this paper. And what that suggests is if if that shape is somehow distorted or if it's not represented, that means that that data set is being acted upon by some external force. In other words, it's not truly random. And... I want to clear up a point of confusion here because you said something about a random number generator, right? Yep. Yeah. So a random number generator is not the same thing as a statistically random process. The random number generator might take the shape of the Gaussian, but the data that it produces are not going to look the same as like a random sampling of data. Right. So that's the, the, the equality of the number of samples in each bin, making this like flat rectangular shape as opposed to the bell curve. Huge, huge indicator. Every data scientist in the world who has ever worked with a single data set is going to know that that is different than a random sampling. Yeah, Uh, And and just because that's that's how data sets look doesn't mean that you can't draw useful information from the Gaussian, from the normal distribution. Yeah, of course. But if it's it's not there, yeah, we we, we have a a fun example we'll talk about later on. But the point is that 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 characteristic shape is a massive tell that somebody somebody is taking the piss here. If 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 distribution taking a piss, what a great phrase. Our, our father would be proud of that one. That's a good one. If the distribution <laughs> looks like this shape, then it was intentionally done. Now, medical research, randomized trials, like they will want their bins to be even so that they can understand a maybe age makes a difference, maybe finance financial information makes a difference. But this was supposed to be a random sampling of people with car insurance or whatever, and you see that and it screams. There, uh, part of this episode is going to be there are a number of graphs that, and I'm just now thinking of this parallel, the um, uncanny valley, right? When things look too human but they're not human, people freak out. They're like, this isn't. There are data in graphs where when you can just see it with your eyes. And not even me being a data scientist, looking at the graph and being like, this smells, this is uncomfortable, this is not right. This is not how this is supposed to look. We'll get into that with Purdue Pharmaceuticals and the um, the famous congressional testimony of the guy that was uh, 
trying to be a whistleblower for Bernie Madoff. He was in Congress, and he said, he literally did this. You won't be able to see this. This is great podcasting. He gets his arm from his elbow to his wrist, and he, he makes like an angle. And he said, the reason I knew it was bullshit is because the, the data goes like this at an angle, like up straight up in the air at an angle. And then, he, and then he does this with his fingers, like up and down and up and down. He's like, it's supposed to look like this. There's up and down and up and down. But his was like this. And yeah, it was like a, like a karate punch. But he's right. Incredible. Like that kind of uncanny value is like nothing just grows purely. The samples are incorrect. So Data Collider broke in and they were like, that was the, um, their smoke. Like that was like, okay, let's figure it out. And then that was like their smoldering campfire, really. Yes. Yeah. And then they dug into the stuff and saw the fonts. And you, you, this episode is not exclusively about the scandal. And you can dig into it more if you want. I highly recommend it. It is hilarious. Is, I think Harvard has suspended this person indefinitely, um, Professor something something. <laughs> and yeah, this is, this is, we're, we're talking about uh, Harvard professor Francesca Gino. Gino, yes. Or Gino. Gino, I, Gino, I'm sure it's I'm sure Gino. It's, I'm sure it's Gino. It's I think it's Gino. Gino. It's Gino. No, I don't know. All the TikToks I listened to, I forgot. Yeah, she's a, a famous a famous Harvard Business School professor who researches dishonesty and unethical behavior. Yes. And it's it's just it's just so uh, looking at looking back in hindsight, we're gonna wonder why we ever thought that this is like the woman who wrote a book, How to Kill Your Husband. Yeah. And she was indicted for murdering her husband. Yep. It's like, well, Guys, you know, Sometimes. really, it's on us for not having yeah. seen this couple. I, I agree. So she uh, has to retract the the paper. She's like, suspended. There's disciplinary. And they're looking back into all of her stuff because you're like, okay, what's going on? So that, looking back into all of her stuff and figuring out what's going on and why data is good and why data is bad is kind of the crux of this episode, which is this really terrible cycle that academics and scientists are on, which is that they need to publish and if they're good, they need that publication to be relevant in a positive way. And this goes back to my idea of the Journal of, of Negative Results. Just like published things that found nothing, that's fine. So the next thing I want to talk about is something called p-values. We've talked about p-values on the show. And Chris, under, of course, understands what a p-value is. Chris? Uh, yeah, I understand what a p-value is. But for those of us who don't remember, who are listening to this, why don't you go ahead and explain what p-values are? Oh yeah, let's get let's go let the party school liberal arts guy do it. Here we go. Um, you brought it up. I did. So a p-value is something when you're analyzing data in a paper. The p-value represents like kind of the replicatability of the study. So in in medicine and most scientific and mathematic uh, like data driven academic research, a p-value of 0 0.05 means that there's essentially a 95% chance that this is the actual results of the study and that the study have no, like a 5% chance of this being just like randomly how it worked out. So let's, let's give an example. Let's say we were testing cancer medicine against no cancer medicine for treating cancer and the cancer medicine isn't proven. Your p-value would indicate that if the people who didn't get cancer or who didn't get the medicine also got better and the people that got the medicine got better that would mean that there's a 95% chance essentially that that's random or that it's that, that 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 it's accurate that the people who got the medicine either got better or they didn't that means that the data that you're looking at are are accurate and it's it, it it's supposed to mathematically eliminate the argument of like well how do we know it's not random like well that's kind of how we know well to quote directly from an article published by uh, the National Institutes of Health the the p value stands for the probability Mm -hmm. it, it like the, the P means probability and yep. it's a measure of the probability of how likely it is that any observed difference between two measured groups is due to random chance. Yeah. So is it okay if you if you take one group 
and another group, and you get two sets of data from whatever you're measuring. So in this, in your example, it would be cancer drugs versus no cancer drugs. Right. If there's a difference between those two groups, you can't immediately jump to the conclusion and say, ah, well, of course, the group that received the drugs is going to be the one that has better results with their cancer prognosis or whatever. Right. That may not necessarily be the case. There's some percentage chance, just statistically, that the improvements or the differences in the results or whatever the case is, any discrepancy could be due to just random chance. Like they, this group of people in the study just happened to get better and the other group right. just happened to not. And so the question of, okay, well, how likely is it that that difference in results was due to random chance? That's what the p-value is. Right. So then the reason we say- so, we so so we're, we're talking about p-values is like, you can you can do this with percentages. So the percentage is like 0% to 100%. Yeah. It's, scientists don't use writing the percent sign over and over again is really cumbersome. Right. So they just multiply by one one hundredth. And so the p-value is some number between zero and one. Right. And on that scale, you can just translate it into a percentage. So a p-value of 0.99 corresponds to a 99% likelihood that the observed difference is actually due to chance and not some external factor. Right. And it's it's like, again, getting into the deep statistics of it could be boring to people or interesting to people. I found it interesting when I, I found that like math was not my uh, my uh, forte, but I do like statistics and the calculus statistics. I think it's kind of fun and, and interesting and it, it correlates with confidence intervals and all of that. But the, the purpose of this is that uh, in science and academic publishing, kind of arbitrarily, kind of reasonably, moons ago, everyone decided a p-value of... Uh, greater than 0 0.05 or less than 0 0.05, excuse me, means that there is at least a 95% chance that it isn't random. It's, it was kind of a line that was drawn in the sand and they're like, if your shit is legit, it is going to be this p-value. It cannot be 0 0.06. It cannot be uh, 0 0.055, which is interesting. I remember one time we were, as a, as a cancer journalist, I wanted to write about a study being statistically significant, which is what they mark, which is the, the actual lingo that they use when it's meets these these uh, parameters, I wanted to write about a study that had a p-value of 0 0.04 or 0 0.054. So not quite it's 95%. 0 0.054. So it's 54% so it's chance likely that... No, it's 96. 94.6, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, so point zero point zero five four. Yes, 0 0.054. Gotcha. That's my bad. Yes. So, that, so instead of being 95%, right. it was 94.6%. And I was like, this is making me go, I mean, this is kind of stupid that, I mean, they're basically statistically significant, but for whatever reason, and now by not publishing the news story and calling it statistically significant, we are incentivizing these people to like lie and manipulate the data in like after the fact so that it can get to 95%, which is sort of how people start manipulating stuff. You get fame, you get money, you get published. And on one hand, it makes your career better. On the other hand, it prevents you from losing your career because these, these scientists have to continue to do this kind of stuff. Yeah, that, that, that's that's a really good point. I mean, like it, it's it's important not to get hung up on the exact like precise numerical calculations yeah, for a variety so. of reasons. It, it, with with I think medical and like social sciences, it's a little bit different because the measurement that you're using is not usually as precise as like like in a physics or chemistry. If you're doing like analytical chemistry or physics or whatever, you really have to consider stuff like significant figures and the level of precision that you're able to calculate something. It, to which you're able to calculate some kind of observation, that calculation carries through. And the statistical, like the error analysis, it, it's much more, it requires much more fidelity, I think, than dealing yeah. with like patient A observed this result and patient B observed that result. Sure, no question. 
So um, it's interesting because I mean, let's get into our second chart, the one that I find hilarious. This really great creator on TikTok. I should give him some credit because this is just a brilliant way to illustrate a point. I don't want to scroll on TikTok because it is going to play, so I'm not going to do that. But it's the link is right. in uh, the, the bio. Yeah, I'm just not going to do that because I don't want it to because TikTok makes us listen to it automatically, so I'm not going to play it on the desktop. So That's he fair. found um, that men's self-reported height very similarly to the self-reported quote-unquote mileage of this scandal there was an enormous anomaly so we're doing bins right and we know that the average height for a man in the world is somewhere between 58 and 59 if i remember right it doesn't matter so let's, just like let's, the, see, let's see what google says i, I okay. do want to i do want to see but it's okay so continue the story but sure uh, i i'm i'm gonna look this up yeah so the distribution belt like reverse bell curve thing we were just talking about in the bins is like the majority of men on planet earth are somewhere between like 510 and 58 and then it kind of you know you have outliers all the way up to like 7 8 or whatever and then you have outliers all the way uh, down to i'm assuming around four feet or 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 less right so however on self-reported height that is completely accurate except once you get to six feet so it's bell curving away it's bell curving away and then bam huge chimney at six feet which means either there's just a crazy amount of men who are exactly six feet tall or perhaps and i know that the women who listen to this are like "Mm -hmm." uh there uh, are a bunch of men who are like yeah i'm basically six feet <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I mean that's 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 100 percent what it is. It's like, yeah. like what did we talk about last or two two episodes ago with like, every guy out there thinks he can win a fight and every guy out there thinks he can land a plane. Land a By plane. the way, I want to give a, a quick shout out to uh, my, my buddy of mine Justin. Mm-hmm. Uh, shout out to Justin for pointing out that you kind of have to have the audacity that to I think agree. that you can land the plane because the alternative is to just sit there and let the plane crash. So <sighs> he's right. Yeah, and that is the perfect reasoning that every male runs through. When it comes to situations like that, yes. Can but I? Can there I, is. I, I'm gonna say something really douchey, really quick. I have oh, an idea. That'll be different. Yeah. That was, that was nice so change weird. of pace for us here on the old pod. Hold on, shush. And drum sound. There it is. Okay. So um, I, I had a. I, I thought this would I because I don't I've often tried to write stuff and be creative just for fun and I I'm not a funny writer I don't understand how people co- comedians are great I love them because it's just amazing to me to write funny I did however it's it's hard to be funny it's hard it's to write really, funny things and like on command like moments are funny and people can be charismatic in person but to write funny so I had my first funny skit idea on the airplane thing which was that the problem isn't that a man thinks that they could be talked into landing a commercial airliner the problem is that every man on the plane does and how do you select the person that gets to try to land the plane. So then, like, the plane is, like, actively floating to its death, and all the men are like, oh, so we're just going to do like, a rock, paper, scissors tournament or arm wrestling? Like, what are, who gets to land the plane? And then the plane dies. Like, see, that's the first thing I thought, like, this is my first real shot at comedy where I could see a situation. Because every I would be like, I, yep, I'll, t- I'll do it. I'm 100% down. I'll, I'll land the plane. Oh, yeah, no no question. So by the time you figure it out, the plane has already crashed. 100%. Okay, so. Well, I, think, I do think it's, 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 it's that same audacity that leads men who are close to six feet to self-report of being six feet and just kind of hope that nobody notices. And it depends where you're self-reporting, right? Because if they're drawing this information from men who are participating in the survey, it doesn't seem like there's that much incentive to lie. However, I think that the data were pulled from dating apps where there's an enormous incentive to lie. Being over six feet tall is like... Um, it, it compounds your match rate by like many, many factors, like hundreds and hundreds of times. So that is a different sociological conversation for a different dating game episode. But it showed that dating game episode. men are lying, there's the threshold. That was the example that this creator used to point out a publication. Um, this is such a, Chris, how do you feel about alliterations? 
I love alliteration. Okay. Is this the... Love little alliterations. <laughs> the peculiar prevalence of p-values. Oh, my God. Not bad. So this bell curve thing is, is exactly the same thing that this guy found. There's a paper. These guys studied it. I want to find the link, but I refuse to play the TikTok right now. They were Thank studying you. where p-values in... Uh, academic research were landing and what they found was that most of them were not quite at this statistically significant threshold of being less than 0.05 for 95%. Bell curves down, bell curves down, bell curves down, gets to 0.05 or 0.05 and shoots up. It's like, well, they're not lying about the p-value, but what they're doing probably is manipulating the study after it's kind of going. It's like, oh, look, our p-value is where it needs to be now. The the, the problem with this is that if the p-value had simply been like a couple percentage points in the other direction, maybe the findings would have been more accurate and more honest and better. So are they lying to just get the p-value? Or is it like they're a larger system at play where they're like, you need this p-value to be this 95% number. Otherwise, you can't get published and then you lose your tenure track. And like that, that graph and this finding to me kind of points out like, what can you trust? Like they have to get this arbitrary random number. Why, why not 94%? Well, th- actually, I I, th- I do think that there is some significance to the p values. Like, this isn't necessarily like a one to one correlation. Sure. But when we when we talk about like confidence intervals, yeah. that has to do with this normal distribution, like the shape of this yeah. of this graph. And, th- and this isn't this isn't supposed to be a stats course. But the the big takeaway here is that for a random set of data, you are supposed to see this characteristic bell shape, and it and it feels a little weird. It's like, well, you know, how can all kinds of different data have this similar sort of distribution? And that's that's just a mathematical artifact of sampling and and one of the things about the, there are basically a couple of things about this formula that are that are really key to take away from here the first one is what we've already mentioned any kind of any kind of morphing or deformation of the bell curve it, whether it's like this this chimney that appears at six feet tall or whether it's like turning the whole shape into a rectangle any kind of deformation of that shape is indicative of some kind of outside force acting on the random sampling that makes it not really truly random so yeah. the the men being six foot thing, the outside force would be, well, you said these data are taken from dating apps. Men have an incentive to lie about that. And so that incentive is the thing that distorts the shape of the random sample. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and another thing about these these distributions is that the mathematical equation for it is, it, it's actually really interesting. It's it, it's a mathematical function that is parameterized around two, ba- two basic kind of knobs that you statisticians can turn to manipulate what the data set looks like. Those things are the mean and the standard deviation. So the mean is just the average number of all the samples that are put together. And that's like the center point usually of the, uh, of the yeah. peak of the bell curve. And the standard deviation is, it's a it's a more complex mathematical computation, but it's basically like, okay, what's like the standard difference between any two measurements that are on this graph? And as you turn those levers, mean and standard deviation, as you adjust those parameters in the mathematical model, you can come up with a couple of different results. But one of the one of the reasons that standard deviation is so useful as a parameter in understanding statistics is that it doesn't matter where you're looking on the data set. What matters is the relationship between the number of standard deviations you're looking like step, how far away from the median are we? And the percentage of samples that are going to be included in what you're talking about. So here's what I mean. This is a, a quotation from Investopedia. There's something called the empirical rule. 
for normal distributions. So for all normal distributions, 8.2% of observations, so that's over two-thirds of all samples, are going to appear within one plus or minus standard deviation from the mean. So what that means is, from the mean, the peak of the bell curve, if you step one standard deviation away, some number of bins that constitutes one standard deviation, and then you do that in the opposite direction, so there's like a mirror, this, like, the, the, the one standard deviation on either side of the mean, that constitutes over two-thirds of the entire sample. 68.2% of all observations are included in this chunk. So that means, like, the tail ends on either side. That is, what, whatever the inverse of that is, like, 31.8%. Sure. Like, yes. So that is the number of samples that exist on those tail ends. And that's where you see, like, those those are really, really small. The outliers. Uh, if, so if you, yeah, the, the, yeah, the outliers, exactly. So what happens if you take another step? You're two standard deviations away from the mean. Okay. Yeah. Well, suddenly the number of samples that you have included there under the underneath the curve here, that jumps to 95.4% of all observations. That's crazy. And then, and then with a third standard deviation, you go to 99.7% within three standard deviations. That's wild. For the majority of all of the observations. Right. It's That's crazy. basically... Every, all but 0.3% of the samples that you take are within three standard deviations of, of the sample. So that's why the extreme outliers on either end, like the people who don't drive at all or the people who drive hundreds of thousands of miles, there are very, very few of those people. And the, the, the more normal a shape is, the more like ideal, I guess, the Gaussian is going to be. But it's always the case for a normal distribution that the number of standard deviations corresponds precisely with those three percentages on either yeah. side of the mean. 68.2, yeah. 95.4, 99.7. So it kind, of, it kind of illustrates the fact that if there's not this natural progression that either it was manipulated on purpose, which it, when I say manipulated, I don't want that to be a negative connotation. Like we said, sometimes those that, like that's on purpose. It's intentional to get a, a sample size that is not a random naturally occurring sample size. But if right. it is not disclosed, the most important section I tell people when I started reading medical data, the most important section is the methods section. Find out how they did it. That's where the, those are where the bodies are buried, for sure. And when I say bodies, I actually mean bodies because a great example of how standard deviation and different points and times on graphs um, can matter are two things that have happened. Well, one's happening now and one happened really recently. The one that's happening now is average uh, lifespan among people on the planet. For those of you that don't know, we just kind of survived, um, well, there are two plagues going on at once, but there's, you know, of course, um, some stigma around the HIV pandemic, which is still ongoing for sure. But the the viral pandemic of 2020 has completely befuddled naturally occurring in a vacuum data about the average life expectancy for all humans, not for uh, this sex or that age or this country, all of them. Everything all over the world has been, there's going to be a huge decline in the average lifespan. So as a data scientist, your question, you're, you're left with, you got to record it, of course, but then how do you analyze it? Well, the average lifespan in the United States has just declined in the huge, yes, but also the plague that happened was probably responsible for a large number of that. Does it muddle the data around other things going on, particularly in the United States alone for um, opioids, uh, gun-related deaths, which include suicide and homicide? Who knows? You can't even study those as accurately unless you figure out how much the standard deviation has been impacted by the plague, right? Like that, that's, but you have to include it because if you're going throughout history, you want the plagues to be noticeable on the graph. So, uh, cause if they weren't noticeable, then you would be like, Hey, somebody's manipulating something here. Cause I know that that should be a dip. 
yeah, they should the, the data should be normalized to incorporate the excess deaths from the from the pandemics. Yeah. And in general, I, I think they are. Yeah. But the point is that the disruption of the normal distribution indicates that some outside force is acting yes. on the data set and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's nefarious in the case where the data are all randomly generated numbers and it's just a big rectangle then yeah clearly somebody's making shit up but in the case where there's like some some deviation from the bimodal for from the normal like unipolar distribution yeah some some other factor is at play that should arouse suspicions right and just like the people at data colada they saw the thing and it aroused their suspicions so they're like okay either luck or uh foolishness i have another chart for you and this one uh led to kind of the negligent homicide of hundreds of thousands maybe millions of people so this is a very famous and infamous chart i'm not alleging this i'm reporting it um <laughs> confirming Journalism. it you heard it here Confirming it. This is a very infamous chart now. It was used by Purdue Pharmaceuticals in presentations to the uh, FDA. At that point, the Food and Drug Administration. I don't know what Trump has changed it to, if that has happened or not. The Federal Drug Administration. The organization in the know. United States that approves uh, pharmaceutical products for treatment of stuff, right? Like FDA label. So the, the, the chart that is in question is a logarithmic chart. And its purpose was to show that this opioid, um, OxyContin, which is the one that got us all addicted to heroin, that yep. it was meant to show to the FDA and the government that it didn't have something called peaks and valleys. Now, in time-release drugs, a peak and a valley, and I, I use time-release Adderall for, for ADHD, a peak and a valley means that the drug will sort of wear off after a couple hours, and then it'll kind of hit back in your bloodstream, and you'll be kind of high. The danger of time-release drugs is that those highs are highs. It's not medicating your disease. It's kind of getting you high. So they're very dangerous, these peaks and valleys. So Purdue, in order to make it look like they have found a way to avoid the peaks and valleys, similar to the Bernie Madoff guy, found one where the elbow goes down. Like, look, it's a nice, gentle downslope. The way that they were able to do this was, in their presentation, they left off on the graph the x-axis. They're like, there's no thing here. And then they found the original chart in the prosecution, and they found that the x-axis is not an even distribution of time. It doesn't go from 1 to 2 to... It is it's not a linear distribution of it time. It is not linear. So it's, it is, this x-axis is logarithmic. It jumps. And so yeah, it so becomes what, and so linear. what that means, what the, what the logarithmic thing means for, like if, if you yes. guys remember chemistry class, the pH, mm -hmm. every, every one step on a scale that's logarithmic means that it's a factor of 10 larger or smaller in impact. So if you go up by a logarithmic increase, when you take one step on the chart, you're not going up by one unit. You're going up an order of magnitude. You're going up 10 times. And then another step. From the original, you're going up 100 times. Another step would be 1,000 times. So you're you're truly magnifying where the sample is. And, and the reason that we use logarithmic charts is to show very, very large increases or very, very small, or it decreases to very, very small size yep. over a range that would be just like you couldn't make a chart that's big enough to have any kind of Correct. meaning for that. So you use this scaled approach to demonstrate what the what the overall like characteristic shape looks like. Right. But if you don't include that information on the original chart, like Purdue yes. Pharmaceuticals did not, then people think, oh, well, this is just like a normal linear increase, and they don't scale that mentally. And so that led people to completely underplay how high the highs are. Right. and how low the lows are and how really damaging that cyclic effect of the drug yes. is because they were using a different mathematical scale to consider 
what the time release factor was. Right, exactly. And and they can manipulate the chart in any way to give it any shape that they want. Of course, um, we knew then and we know now that those peaks and, and valleys of, of the drug releasing are the highs and the lows that make people crave the drug. This chart was one of the big things that convinced the FDA. It's not that the drug wasn't related or wasn't... Um, uh, it did, didn't have warning labels and things. The reason that it was so much more dangerous than the other opioids on the market was that Purdue was able to make it look significantly safer than the other opioids. One of the ways that they did that was by doing this, this chart that showed there are no peaks and valleys, which was just a total and complete lie. And not only that, but it was actually far, it was the best opioid you could get. It felt the best. It was the, it was the one that people wanted the most. Um, they simply just lied about how they were able to do that with this ridiculous chart. And so not only is it on the market and prescribable, but the doctors that are prescribing it, having faith in the FDA and the FDA reading the chart, uh, the doctors that are prescribing it is like, not only is it not, you know, that bad, it's just better than the other ones. You're not going to get addicted to this. And of course that um, also impacted the, the declining average lifespan in the United States and has completely had global ramifications that'll take centuries to get rid of, to be frank. So they, it, this is an important an important point is what is the the motivation of the people that are manipulating the data, right? So we found that this person, this Harvard woman, just wanted to be famous and stay at Harvard, right? Purdue wants to make honestly, of you get it, yeah, for yeah, sure, and and you you get that motivation too. It doesn't mean it's good. It doesn't no. mean you should do it. For but, sure. Yeah, I mean the the motivation is is there. It, it, it's clear to me. It explains the discrepancies in the in the data. No question. But what's troubling? What I think is troubling, and and this is really kind of like the the climax toward which we've been marching here. This is not a one-off problem and it's not a rare thing. No. The whole Harvard professor studying dishonesty, being dishonest in her studies, that that's really kind of funny. Frankly, we deserve that kind of thing with where we're at in society yeah, today. Sure. But it's not, that's not a rare case. In fact, the economist published a huge article that kind of outlines just how bad the problem of fake scientific journals publications and fake data is in february of 2023 they wrote this piece and it's it's really just astounding they discuss a lot of things like the incentives that people the publishers have to publish or perish i mean that's that's yep. the model for any kind of grad student scientist postdoc whatever if people aren't writing things that are meaningful to, for the scientific community they're not getting funding and they don't have a job they don't have a career they have to right. continually justify their own existence by producing something of value and that incentive creates a lot of stress for researchers who don't really have a lot of time. Scientific work takes time. It's hard. It's often boring. It's really ungratifying. And without the existence of the journal of no results, mm -hmm. they don't have a place to publish a lot of their work unless it makes a significant impact. So a lot of researchers are put into a position where they need to figure out a way to get stuff sent off so that they can say, go to their provost or research center or whomever and say, look, this is a paper that we published. These are the results that we have. And it has resulted in just an astounding cottage industry of fake scientific publications. And yeah. one of the, one of the key tricks that a lot of these, uh, first of all, there are a lot of them in medical journals. Yes. It's bad. horrifying how many fake medical publications are out there. And there are a lot of people who are like Data Collada who are going out and, and looking for, like making a full-time gig of trying to identify fake data sets using some of the key 
indicators that we've talked about on the show, and obviously they have many others. But there are just, I mean, there are thousands of them. The Economist published a, a number of really interesting charts, and they say that the problem is is getting so, so much worse with time. I mean, they looked at a sample of 4,244 journals to check out, according to a, a resource called Retraction Watch, which mm. is looking at the retraction yes. rate sure. of scientific papers. And on this chart that The Economist included in their publication, they, they counted the retracted biomedical science papers from 1996 to 2023, according to the reasons that people gave for retracting the data. Mm. There are some examples like conflict of interest, a lack of ethical approval, authorship or affiliation, somebody didn't want to be tied to the paper. And those are relatively small numbers. In fact, less than a thousand of the papers that they sampled wow. were retracted from those over a period of nearly three decades. Okay. Of like 20, That's a long years. time. That's the Clinton administration. Yeah, it's a huge amount of time. However, as we go up the list, more and more, pay, the reasons get worse and worse. So confirmed fraud is about a thousand cases. Confirmed fraud. So like confirmed that, that's, fraud. That's guilty of murder. Like you, it's not right. that we suspect it or it's weird. Like you confirm lied. Yes. Somebody has right. been held liable legally for, for having committed fraud as a result of this scientific publication. Wow. Uh, error or contamination. That's like where somebody realizes after the fact, like, oh, it turns out that this sample doesn't spontaneously like grow fungus. I just sneezed and didn't think I got it on the Petri dish. Which in some, in, in some instances, like that is noble for you to go back on your own, but it seems like these people are getting It's caught. not only noble, it's your responsibility to do that as a scientist, frankly. Yeah. yeah. So about 2,000 of those were retracted during this okay, same good. time period. Wow. We're, but we're about to get a little bit worse. There were almost 3,000 papers contaminated as a direct result of plagiarism. So in other wow. words, somebody either copied and pasted like a methodology section word for word or very closely paraphrased a discussion section. In some cases, this The Economist article also outlines how these paper mills, these like organizations of people, which, by the way, are almost always tied to China. They've quantified like... Thousands and thousands of fake papers come out of institutions that have Chinese authors who are tied to Chinese institutions or are in some other way connected to, to China. Like, they're just completely full of shit. Yeah, and too. what they'll do is they'll take a legit medical study and they'll copy the data, they'll copy the methodology, they'll copy the results, they'll copy the conclusions, except they'll change the name of the disease or the condition that they're studying. Wow. They'll change the name of the species that they're taking a look at if it's in something like bacteria or whatever. And if it's esoteric enough... And if they publish it in an obscure enough journal, they'll just get away with it. They'll just make a bunch of shit up and nobody will review because these small journals are equally incentivized to publish or perish because if they don't money. print something, then they're not. Yep. Right. It's they're they're fueled by money. Yep. But we haven't even got to the worst part of the retractions. Okay. Oh, good. I said about <laughs> I said about 3000 of these yep. were retracted due to plagiarism. Yeah. More than 8000 retractions of biomedical science papers during the same time period, more than three, or almost three times as many as were done for plagiarism were retracted for suspected fraud. Wow. Suspected fraud. Suspected fraud. So, so they were people bad enough that they had to be fake. retracted. Wow. Right. And here is the kicker. Here is the, the piece de resistance. Oh, good. And this, I think, really is, it, it's kind of the ugly side, the esoteric side of living in like a post-truth world where like fake news and AI-generated mm -hmm. stuff, it gets hard to figure out what to believe online. It turns out that that's increasingly true in the scientific community too. Because also in this paper, The Economist published a chart also from Retraction Watch looking at the same 4,244 journals assessed from the same time period. From 1996 to 2023, 
they were taking a look at the number of retracted science reports cumulatively. Mm-hmm. And the bad news is the shape is in an inverted exponential curve, meaning that the rate is continuing to increase. Wow. Every single year, there will be there, there is a, a rate of growth of the number of retracted biomedical science papers. It's not that the problem is getting easier to track down and like, oh yeah, well, you know, there's still that persistent hanging around problem. Like maybe this data set is fake. No, it is more likely today. Well, I actually, I don't know if it's more likely today, but I do know that the rate of increase of retraction of biomedical science papers is positive. Yeah. There are more and more of these every year. So it's just, it's crazy to me to think that with like how impactful this study is. And, and, and the economist gives one, they, they do give an example. That's not, uh, it's not the Purdue pharmaceuticals thing, although that would be considered an example of this kind of thing. Sure. But they talk about uh, giving starch infusions as a recommendation to patients undergoing surgery to boost their blood pressure. And that recommendation is based on this, these studies by this German anesthesiologist, Joachim Bolt. Mm-hmm. And, it turns out that this paper that was published in 2013 is based on fabricated data. It's made up. Yeah. So the conclusion was that giving starch infusions to patients in these circumstances actually turned out to ca- cause like a lot of kidney damage, and in some cases, it killed people. Whoa. So old Joaquin Bolt made up shit. People followed recommendations because it was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, and it seemed legit. And patients received the wrong treatment that sometimes resulted in further injury or death. Well, you know, of course, the most famous example of this is the one that you can't put this, uh, you can't put the cat back in the bag here was the guy that completely fabricated the vaccine stuff. Like, that's out forever Man. now. Like, that's game. Like, Crazy. That, perhaps be responsible to, for the deaths of, like, hundreds of millions of people over the subsequent centuries. Like, that that was a moment in time where things were we're good, and then someone made something up, and then now, like, it will be it will be generations before that's unfucked. It, it's bad. Yeah, it's like, it's like an order of magnitude harder to undo misinformation. It's like, it's like, well, like Mark Twain was right. He's like, it, it ain't what you don't know that hurts you. It's what you know for certain that just ain't so. That is such a great way. He was uh, he was a pretty good writer, I'm told. And it's 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 crazy to me because I, I do think that a lot of the people that are making this up, because there are biomedical researchers and most like in my life and some of our listeners who are in medical residency, um, there is a lot of pressure to publish and it matters a lot to the people in getting your job. And but the the real thing that I've noticed being in it is that it shouldn't and it doesn't it doesn't matter. It's objectively stupid for us to make it matter this much, um, and for. In a, in a weird way, there's this inverse thing happening in, in, in healthcare, and this is my actual opinion, but I'm not a doctor. It's not medical advice. There are not, some we, we never give anybody any kind of advice, no, ever. Ever. Never. Never, ever, except for um, some fantasy football advice, which we might talk about next time. Um, the, <laughs> yeah, you need yeah, the advice. I, yeah, okay. So the there are some very elite institutions who, of course, are great clinical places, places that if you were to get sick, you'd want to go there. But increasingly, those places are employing people whose job it is to do research, and that research is highly pressurized. So you're thinking you might get, for I'm not going to use any names, but big city A, instead of going to the 500-year-old college that's there, the hospital out of town might be better because the doctors there don't care about fake publishing. They care about uh, treating patients, which is it, it shows that this is an incentive issue. To, to your medical, your biomedical point, we literally saw the chimney. Like that means that how, what percentage of that chimney of p-values do you think was done? And now that, that this study that was published is, is reliable now, right? Oh, like, geez. I, I mean, the, the whole thing, the integrity of the entire study has to be called into question. You got to like basically start over. Right. It, and you know, it's, 
it's such a shame because like I mentioned living in a post-truth world and I do think it's a reflection like it, it's it's disproportionately more harmful or I guess you have to proceed with more caution now than ever really because I mean society is increasingly secularized and yep. what that means is people are more inclined to like trust the science. Like you hear that slogan all the time. We heard that rightly so during the COVID-19 pandemic. And what that should mean is defer to experts who have a better understanding of the issue, although an imperfect understanding when it comes to like the scientific discussion of the topics, like the average person doing a bunch of Googling doesn't know anymore, but it's especially problematic that they're like the, the, the scientific community the medical community in particular, but at large, like this isn't limited to biomedicine. No. The, the, the scientific community is susceptible as anybody else, and increasingly so, to fabricate like made up bullshit. And that's a huge yeah. problem for people who don't have a high level of scientific literacy. And it's compounded by the fact that, as I said, we live in an increasingly secular society where science is more and more like the way that people view the world. So people yep. rely on that information more and more. For sure. And as science becomes, as our like body of knowledge actually grows, just to say nothing of like the cancer of the disinformation that apparently grows with it, it also becomes increasingly specialized. Yes. And so people have less access. There's a higher barrier to entry to understanding the implications of scientific papers and studies unless you really know the specialty. And that's true even of like other published scientists. I mean, you know, like technically I'm a published scientist and like the work that I did was so esoteric and so kind of valueless. In fact, it would be a really good thing to put hey, in the journal. Hey, submit results. it to the peer review process. You know, honestly, it'll be the first, scientist, it'll be the first you're going to be a peer reviewer. That's you. You're going to be a reviewer. <laughs> right, but but <laughs> prepare for decreased quality yet again. But so the but the fact that that paper was like even people in my own lab had to have explainers like what what are these results and it was like a process over and over again of trying to get them to understand because it's not because they were like somehow dumber than I was they were all way smarter than I was they were all like professional like grad students and postdocs and like lab directors and stuff but they just hadn't spent as much time on that particular project that I had they hadn't looked at like the exact same sets of data or considered the exact same implications of one measurement process versus another. And as science becomes more specialized, fabricated data sets are much more dangerous because people have less and less capability to kind of identify red flags in the first place. I yeah. think that's why the stats stuff is so important to us because if you For can sure. see what like what like jacked up data looks like, you can kind of proceed with caution. Like, okay, you know, maybe there's some truth to this, maybe there's not, but I'm not going to like stake my principles on it but no when question. like do, like medical doctors who go through like like a decade of schooling to get to where they are and like treat patients when they're reading prominent journals that tell them to do things like give patients starch infusions for blood pressure like people die mm -hmm. and it, it's it's an increasing problem and that is really harrowing to me yeah it is and i i, I think that we'll close on an example of like this is Maybe a lighter example because it's a little silly. It's it's hardcore mathematicians, and when I mean mathematicians, I mean it's like Goodwill Hunting, like that level of math, you know, like with the numbers and the dots and shit that I don't understand. Like they're just making it up. Um, uh -huh. Yeah, it's like because it, what you just said was so dark and so accurate, you can't trust anybody anymore. And the gap between the experts and even the people who are sort of experts is growing to the point where like nobody knows what the hell's going on. Here's an example of that, but it's a good, fun, silly example. There is a feud in mathematics that's been going on for a little over 10 years now, and it is at once funny and also would be so maddening if you were in it. So there is this thing. It is called the ABC Conjecture. Have you heard of the ABC Conjecture? No, I have not. What is it? 
it is is one of those things in mathematics. There are a couple of problems. ABC conjecture, like three uh, x plus one, is one of them. That mathematicians are like, oh, don't even attempt to solve that. Men have gone crazy. That kind of thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, for real. So this is what it is. I'm going to try to explain it. I'm going to read it from this blog from quantamagazine.org. So that is such a nerdy URL, and it's .org that I'm I'm going to choose to trust them. Um, uh-huh. So here it is. Here's the conjecture: a plus b equals c, which is not Pythagorean. It's a different number theory thing. I don't know. Here is what it's addition. Right. The three numbers a, b, and c are supposed to be positive integers. They are not allowed to share any common prime factors. For example, eight plus nine equals seventeen is part of this conjecture. However, something like 6 plus 9 equals 15 would not because 6, 9, and 15 are all divisible by 3. Following sure. along? Okay. Yeah. So in this situation, you can look at all of the primes that divide any of the numbers. For, the exi- for an example, um, 5 plus 16 equals 21. The primes are 5, 2, 3, and 17. Multiplying all of the primes together... It produces a number 210, much larger than the numbers of the original equation, which is a plus-minus equation. So 210 is significantly larger than 21. I'm sure that you would agree. I do. It's a, I would say it's 10 times larger. However, for something like 5 plus 27 equals 32, the primes are 5, 3, and 2. The prime product is 30, a smaller number than the 32 in the original equation. So I don't get it. Whatever. The point of this story is some guy from Japan, his name is Shinichi Mochizuki. He is so specialized in a very dark, and when I say dark, I mean he's like the only person that understands his kind of mathematics. He published a paper on his blog, right, that said, I solved it. And everyone's <laughs> like, holy right. shit, no way. And so they went over there to look at it, and they talked to him, and their conclusion was like, the motherfucker didn't solve it. Uh, obviously. But, right, but but they're like, they didn't convince him that his work was flawed, and he didn't convince them that it was salt. So now for a number, for like a decade, we have been in a standoff where, and it's gotten to the point where like Japan, the country of Japan and their scientific societies consider ABC salt because they're standing up for their guy. Wow. Yes, but wow. the mathematical okay. community is like, it's not solved. Most mathematicians are like, I'll be honest, I have no idea what the fuck these... And these are PhD people are like, I have no idea what the fuck these people are talking about. Yes, so everyone's like, I don't know. I don't know. This is a very specific like number theory problem. Yes, yes. It's I mean, deep it just, and it weird. It just has to do with addition and multiplication. That's all it is. Yes, and it's, it's crazy, and like people love that. It can make a career. So this Japanese guy, uh, Mochizuki, he's very charismatic, and he's awesome, and he's fun, but he essentially doesn't talk about it in public. He rarely leaves Japan. It's become a thing where like it seems very suspicious. He doesn't like give lectures on it. There's no open debate about it. He just considers it solved, and everyone else too stupid to get it. The other mega geniuses in the section are like, he's too stupid to understand why it's wrong, and we're at stalemate probably forever. And we may never know. Never until somebody, like, until never. somebody can explain it in layman's terms, and we can come like collect. Actually, I don't even know if that's true. Right, like, that's is it saying. solved or isn't it? Like, it doesn't yes. matter if the public consciousness is aware of it. What matters Correct. is whether it's true or not. And these these high level numbers theory mathematics are literally they're just like brain teasers for geniuses. That's all they really it, are at the end is. of the day. And yeah, nobody like, what, can like solve fundamentally, it. Fundamentally, what's the what's the connection to 
to the larger body of mathematics with this specific yeah. problem. Nothing really, except for this guy's yeah. like, I did it. These guys are like, you didn't. Japan's like, you're just saying that because he's Japanese. And the other people are like, we're not just doing that because he's Japanese. And we're at stalemate. I literally think this will never get better because no one will ever be smart enough to figure it out. AI can't handle number theory. It breaks it. I mean, maybe one day, but it can't right now. So we're just stuck. The day AI can solve this problem is the day I give up this show. Is that right? I think that if there was a way for us to drop in like five or six AI episodes a year just to take some more vacations, I think I'd do it. <laughs> yeah, well, you can't replicate what we're spitting out here. No, we would this break real deal. We would break AI also. They have to make what's the opposite of intelligence? It's artificial that. It's our, you know what? That'd be a much better name for this podcast, artificial that. <laughs> <laughs>